Hello and welcome to the Military Archives podcast. In this, our first episode, we're going to be discussing the destruction and preservation of Ireland's Second World War lookout posts. I'm Commandant Daniel Iotis, the officer in charge of the Military Archives, and I'm joined today by two special guests, Dr. Michael Kennedy and Zoe Reid. Michael Kennedy is a historian, the executive director of Documents on Irish Foreign Policy at the Royal Irish Academy, and the author of Guarding Neutral Ireland, the Coast Watching Service and Military Intelligence, 1939 to 1945. Zoe Reid is the Senior Conservator at the National Archives of Ireland and the current chair of the Irish National Blue Shield Committee. You're both very welcome. Um, a podcast is something we'd been intending to do at the Military Archives for a little while, and it was still in the planning stage when just two weekends ago we read on social media about the apparently deliberate destruction of Lookout Post 13 at Greenore Point in Rosslare Harbour, County Wexford. Now, this was of concern to all of us as people working in the historical archival heritage fields. So we decided that it would be a good idea to use our platform and our podcast to discuss the issue and hopefully bring the significance of these sites to public attention. So firstly, to find out a bit about what exactly happened and what the situation was on the ground, last week I spoke to Councillor Ger Carthy, the current chair of Wexford County Council, and this is what he had to say. Um, at some stage between uh, Friday night and Saturday morning, uh, the roof and the side walls were, were demolished and the watch out tour belonged to the Irish ghost watchers back as far back as uh, World War Two. So it's a piece of um, very important uh, maritime history that uh, was destroyed within a, a matter of hours. Um, not sure at the moment is subject to a... Um, guard investigation of exactly who done it or what the reasons or the rationale was behind it but unfortunately the people of Rastler Harbour now have been denied a piece, a piece of uh, historical um, a historical structure that has stood the test of time for almost 100 years. I've given a commitment to the local community as have the local authority that we reinstate it to its original state but we have a, a job of work to do prior to getting to that stage in relation to the lands uh, that it's uh, currently constructed on uh, but that's a work in progress at the moment. So that was Councillor Ger Carty of Wexford County Council, and I think you'd agree, well, it's positive to hear that there has been a local response to the destruction. It's concerning to us that even if there is a police investigation, these structures are not protected, so a prosecution is unlikely. I think that's something Zoe will discuss later on in terms of the protection of these sites. Now, we at the Military Archives have a special and particular interest in the lookout posts for several reasons. Uh, most directly, the Coast Watching Service were a part of the Defence Forces, and the Military Archives is the place of deposit for all defence records, both military and departmental. Now, while our statutory remit under the National Archives Act is in relation to state records and our professional training is in the area of documentary heritage, the Military Archives has always played a wider role in the broader field of Irish military heritage. And so that's why we have long-standing relationships with the likes of the Irish Military, sorry, the Military History Society of Ireland and the National Museum at Collins Barracks. Um, many of the lookout post logbooks and intelligence reports, as well as various photographs and privately deposited collections are in our custody. And you can find many of those on our website, militaryarchives.ie, if you want to have a look after the podcast. Um, we've also been involved to a greater or lesser extent, and as has Michael, in several local community initiatives to preserve and promote uh, their lookout posts. Uh, most recently, there was Lookout Post 7 in Dawkey. Uh, great work, tremendous work by Desborough Kennedy and the local Tidy Towns Committee. 
and also look at Post 63 in Cahutai County, Mayo. And nationally, these constructions are significant. They're a significant part of Ireland's Second World War archaeology, but as well as nationally, these are tremendous local, cultural and historical resources. Uh, in many cases, the people of the coastal towns and villages where they're located still have direct family connections to the members of the Coast Watching Service who manned them during the 1940s. So, Michael, can you elaborate on the history and tell us a bit about who were the Coast Watching Service? Why was it formed and what did they do? Delighted to, Dan. I mean, what happened at Greenore was an act of pure vandalism and vandalism of the heritage of Ireland and the uh, recent history of all of the citizens of Ireland because the Coast Watching Service was uh, an organisation part of the Defence Forces that kept watch on our country, on our people, 24-7 throughout the Second World War. They were a, a very local branch of the Defence Forces to the extent that the Coast Watchers were all recruited locally. They had really special knowledge of the tides, of the uh, the coastal you know, geography of the, the lie of the land and the lie of the sea, if I can put it that way, off their lookout posts. And what they were doing was providing a local intelligence service 24 hours a day, uh, 365 days a year during the Second World War that was essentially an invasion watch. The men at Greenore Lookout Post were the eyes and ears of the Defence Forces watching for an invading force that thankfully never came. Uh, if they had, the history of Ireland would be so very different. They were the first point of contact that the Defence Forces would have had with the enemy, whoever the enemy might have been, Britain or Germany, uh, coming onto Irish territory. And it's from the lookout posts, such as, as Green Ore, that the phone call would have been made to Defence Forces headquarters that it's happened Ireland has been invaded, we are now in the Second World War. So the destruction that happened at Green Ore really rips the heart out of Ireland's Second World War history. It's, it's quite a barbaric act in terms of destruction of our uh, contemporary history, our national identity, and, and the removal of a very visible sign of a very difficult period in 20th century Irish history where the state was really uh, trying to survive to make sure it got through as a neutral uh, the Second World War unscathed and where invasion was every day a real possibility. We all look back in retrospect and say, well, Ireland wasn't invaded. Um, that's where we're all wise in retrospect. But at the time, the men at Green Ore and in the 83 other lookout posts around the coast were watching, taking notes. We, we heard from uh, excerpts from the lookout post logbook there. They have kept uh, through their records a real-time, day-by-day war diary of the Second World War as it took place around and over Ireland. And that's why they are so significant as a piece of our history and our heritage, our recent archeology span and our built 20th century heritage. And we will indeed hear those extracts um, soon, but I, mean, I think we're still in rehearsal mode. <laughs> but um, we will, um, but the lookout post, the Coast Watching Service, that was established very quickly upon the declaration of war, wasn't it? It, it was. Were, I mean, the, the, Problem was that Ireland had no navy, no navy worth mm. speaking of, just a, a couple of motor torpedo boats and two uh, trawlers that had been converted for military use. So the sense was, you defend your territory or somebody else will defend it for you by invading it. 
And that was something that Ireland, which was a, you know, a young state anxious to show its sovereignty, to show its sovereignty through its neutrality, uh, that was something Ireland wasn't going to allow happen. So the Coast Watching Service was set up in the, the late 1930s, in 1938 into 1939, the plans were, were there to get local men together and to get them out on the coast the minute war was likely. They weren't in lookout posts initially, the, the concrete structures, they were in bell tents, you know, army issue bell tents. That was fine in the autumn of 1939, but by the winter of 1939 into 1940, as the, uh, the weather changed, particularly along the Atlantic coast, the bell tents were blown away into the ocean and uh, a more permanent structure was needed. And that's why the, um, the lookout posts that we're talking about today were established. But it was a, a very uh, swift act to bring men together, uh, to get them trained. Uh, many of these men had uh, seafaring knowledge, had a, a background in, the, in maritime matters, get them trained in Morse code, get them trained in uh, observational techniques, in navigation, in uh, signaling, and in simply in, in identifying aircraft and mines, uh, being able to identify and record any belligerent matter that might be seen off the Irish coast. And that was the, the first uh, sense of record the war that's out there, uh, try and be the first port of call should there be uh, an invasion. And then by the, uh, the middle years of the war, the coast watchers are observing, watching, recording uh, the war in the, the Battle of the Atlantic. And they're involved in some pretty uh, grim uh, matters, such as you know taking ashore uh, the bodies yeah. of fellows who were drowned during the uh, belligerent uh, seamen and airmen who were drowned during the Battle of the Atlantic. So they're set up very quickly, but their task changes throughout the, the, the war from being an anti-invasion watch to being an intelligence gathering service. Yeah, a few points you mentioned there. First was, I mean, you can't detract from how serious an operation this was. Firstly, in terms of the weather on the coast there, I remember when we visited Karu Tyke, even now it's a 30-minute walk from the road to get to the position of the lookout post. Um, we can only imagine what the conditions were like during the winter when it was, it was relatively, it wasn't the most stable conditions underfoot walking to it during the summer. Um, I think the men who built it initially, they had to use donkeys to get the material there. And for the rebuild itself, the Air Corps had to fly the material in by helicopter because it was the most practical way to do it. And as well, something you and I have spoken about before, there can sometimes be a misconception in Ireland that the emergency is a term of equivocation or almost a twee term. But this, as you said, it, it was the penultimate step to an all-out declaration of war or Ireland coming into the war one way or another. That's it. The, the, the term emergency doesn't mean a kind of uh, sitting back and resting, uh, you know, and the term emergency is the penultimate stage in the transition to war plans that the government have put in place. The next, the final stage is war. So you're constantly waiting, uh, watching, uh, being alert, and that's where the coast watchers come in, and that's where the chain of those 83 lookout posts around the coast, one every roughly 10 miles or so, are so important. Telephones, telescopes, the human eyeball, knowing the lie of the land, knowing what ships are, are likely to be out there, what planes are likely to be overhead. Uh, they're, they're on watch all the time and, and reporting back to local military commands, to command headquarters. This isn't um, you know, a, a kind of child's game. This is really serious because it's on their reports, it's on the Coast Watchers' reports that the Defence Forces will mobilise to meet an invader. And were that to happen, the... Um, you know, Ireland would be in the war. It's, it's a really, really important task they have. And 
just because there are ruined structures there today and, and we have a sense of, of security because the war was, if you like, we didn't get involved in the war, that, doesn't, that should not detract from a real understanding of how critical their mission was as a, an anti-invasion watch and uh, to defend against a, a threat that thankfully never materialised. And in terms of the significance of what they were doing, you mentioned the, the phone lines. Would I be right in saying that these lookout posts at the time would have had phone lines when many or, or none of the houses or maybe one, maybe the post office in the local village or town would be the only place that there would be another phone line in the whole place? Absolutely. And the, the, the construction of so many posts around the coast uh, is an important part of the development of the Irish telephone network because the, you had to get some real-time form of communication out there to the extremities of, of, of the country. So in areas like uh, Belmullet, where, where the, the phone system hadn't developed, uh, you, the lookout post will, will have a phone number, something like Belmullet 3, you know, and, and Belmullet 1 might be the parish priest, Belmullet 2 might be the doctor. So, you know, it, it really is a, a sign of um, how technologically underdeveloped Ireland was in the late 1930s, but also because the, the phone network has expanded relatively quick, quickly for the time, within six to eight months, it shows how the country was mobilising itself to meet the demands of the Second World War. And you can still see in some of the locations around the country, near lookout posts, rotting telephone poles with, you know, with resistors on them, ceramic resistors on them, that are the, the, the legacy we have now of that expansion of the phone network because of the military and defence requirements of the country. And these coast-watching service lookout posts, they fed into a much bigger and very serious picture in terms of army intelligence, which itself was working with, well, I suppose, um, discreetly with other certain other intelligence agencies in, in other states. Oh, absolutely. That the, the local function of the coast-watchers, they, they knew what they were looking at in their own sector, but they never realised that the reports that they would be phoning up to Dublin, going to Air Defence Command or you know, Defence Forces Headquarters would become part of the power play between Britain, uh, Ireland, the Allies over you know, the information battle, the intelligence battle over the Battle of the Atlantic, the Second World War, uh, the, you know, the build-up to the invasion of Europe. Uh, so the Coast Watchers are providing pieces of really important information that Dublin is able to barter with London, with Washington, uh, and particularly in the, in the build-up to D-Day, the Coast Watchers play a really important part in uh, making sure that the aircraft that are coming to you know, pulverise Berlin or, or pulverise uh, parts of Germany, that they get across the Atlantic correctly, that they don't crash land in Irish territory, that the, the air signs, uh, the neut neutrality signs that are each lookout post, at each lookout post are built by the Coast Watchers. So throughout the Second World War, uh, so many parts of high-level diplomacy and military policy uh, in you know, Ireland's neutrality can be linked back to this local network of 83 posts around the coast of, of which Greenor was won. So Greenor is playing a really important part in this much wider battle that the, 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 the corporal and the, the eight or ten men at the post would never really have known about. And the, the lookout post in question, Greenor point number 13, its location gave it a particular strategic significance in gathering the intelligence we mentioned because, of course, it faced into St George's Channel and then the Bristol Channel beyond that and then the English Channel behind that again. Um, so I might, before I get you to tell us a little bit about that, um, I have a short recording of some of the things reported back by the Coast Watchers stationed there um, that made its way into the Army Intelligence Daily Reports and that'll give the audience a flavour of the, the kind of activity that was going on on the southeast coast at the time.
1st of April 1941, 15.35 hours, lookout post Green Ore observed what appeared to be a ship on fire 10 miles southeast of Post, just off the South Rock Buoy. A mine washed ashore at Ballytrent, two and a half miles southwest of Green Ore, was later destroyed. 2nd of April 1941, 12.50 hours, lookout post Green Ore observed an unidentified destroyer eight miles southeast of Post going out westwards. 2025 hours, lookout post Green Ore heard sound of aircraft five miles south of Post, which appeared to be circling. 4th of April 1941, 12.57 to 13.05 hours, an unidentified aircraft flew along the Wexford coast three to nine miles out from Green Ore to Kilmichael Point. 1320-1324 hours, lookout post Green Ore and Carnsore heard aircraft 4-5 to five miles out, going southwestwards. And this gives, I think, just a, a snapshot of the regularity of actions observed by the coast watchers at lookout post 13. Um, can you elaborate a bit on the significance of the lookout post and its neighbouring lookout post, specifically in Rosslare Harbour during the war? I think, Dan, you've, you've just got to think about the map of Ireland, the southeast corner of Ireland, Rosslair Harbour, the shipping channels that you mentioned, and the, um, the, the air routes as well, we can mention, and, and also bring in the Tusker Rock Lighthouse there. That the southeast corner of Ireland is like a, a, a maritime and an aviation waypoint. It's, it's geographically very distinct. Uh, it's very uh, clearly needed as a, a strategic point for uh, aircraft seeking to transit up the Irish Sea. It's also a point of departure for convoys and naval vessels. If you're coming from the west, left up the Irish Sea or straight ahead uh, through uh, into the English Channel, really, through St. George's Channel. So it's a really important area geographically in terms of the you know, kind of geomilitary structures, if I can use that word. Um, it's an important waypoint also because of, I mentioned the Tusker Rock Lighthouse and that the lights are, or sea lights are, are working during the, during the war. So that becomes a navigation waypoint. So Green Ore Lookout Post is looking at a, a maritime and an aviation crossroads. And I think those connections that, that, that you know, we, we have with, with the past through the Lookout Post uh, logbooks, it really comes out there in those, those excerpts that you mentioned uh, that were read out because they show the the, the the, kind of the, the, the large amount of traffic that is taking place off the coast. And the, although there are only isolated instances you've got there, if you put them all together, and that's what the Coast Watchers and what G2 military intelligence were doing, you get a picture day by day, even hour by hour, of how the war is being played out off the southeast coast of Ireland. So it's a really important strategic location in terms of um, the, the Battle of Britain and Luftwaffe aircraft seeking to... Uh, head up the Irish Sea to bomb Bristol, bomb Liverpool. It's also important in terms of convoy traffic, although that declines a little bit in the war because there's a minefield from Wales to, to Waterford, effectively. And it's an important location, too, in terms of the, the military defence of Ireland because Rosslare Harbour, it's a, a, a pier with a cross-channel ferry service at it. It's not only a civilian area, it's fairly useful if you want to invade Ireland, that you've got a... Um, uh, a railhead and uh, the lookout post uh, at Greenor was watching for this, I made the point earlier, an in invasion force that would come ashore at Rosslare and would seek to take territory in the southeast of Ireland as part of the, the push on Dublin. And so the, the Greenor lookout post was also filtering into the, the local military 
uh, in environment because the pier at Rosslare was, um, it had ex explosives put into it and there were pillboxes uh, just above the harbour that had a, a kind of a demolition key in them, a plunger if you like in them. And uh, if the enemy was uh, arriving on the, the Irish coast, the, the pier at Rosslare would be destroyed uh, by letting off that charge. So Green Ore has also a very a, a local military importance because of the the, uh, the maritime facilities at Rosslare Harbour, the railhead to Dublin, and also the road network coming out of Rosslare and heading off in the Dublin area. So Green Ore is part of the local defence as well as the, the international perspective there for watching the war off the Irish coast. And we were actually joking during the week that um, that's still on tabletop exercises for the army, that's still very often the kind of planning scenario people are given. And anybody who's listening who's an NCO or an officer, they'll be familiar with the idea of a of a fantasy enemy coming in through Rosslare and moving up towards Dublin. So it just shows the, the resonance that that still has and the, the real geographic significance. Well, it's really important that, you know, you need to think of the, particularly as a, as a military historian, you need to think of the country as a militarised and a strategic and a kind of tactical area that the, the, the roads, the bridges, the valleys, mm. the rivers all have a military significance. And you need to think, how does the defence forces seek to defend the country during the Second World War with very, very little in, in the way of, of, um, of equipment, certainly a lot of men, but uh, a, a lack of equipment. And so they have to use the uh, their own ingenuity, and that's where the Coast Watching Service comes out of. It's, it's an Irish, uh, it's a, a, a guaranteed Irish product, if you like, because we come up with this idea ourselves. So it's, it's really, Green Ore is really important as a, a national response to an international crisis using the resources, the scarce resources at our disposal. Well, Michael, you've given us a great historical background. So Zoe, can I come to you now to talk about the the future of, of these things. Uh, as I mentioned, you're both conservator and the chair of the Irish Blue Shield Committee. So firstly, for those listening who haven't heard of it, can you tell us what Blue Shield is about? Hi, Dan. Thanks for the invitation and thanks for being here today. Michael, that was absolutely fascinating. <laughs> it really was. Um, so the Blue Shield um, is an organisation, it's an international organisation, and it's dedicated to the protection of heritage from both conflicts and natural disasters. Um, it gets its name from the album that comes with the 1954 Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property, um, which again is an international agreement um, that many countries around the world have signed up to since 1954. And in fact, Ireland um, ratified the second protocol itself in 2018. Um, and what the Blue Shield has is um, it's got a large um, sort of uh, board and governing body, but then it has national committees in, are all around the world. And I'm in the fortunate position to be chair of the national committee here in Ireland. And that committee was set up in 2012. Um, and the main thing that that committee did when it first got set up was to lobby and um, sort of highlight the need and, and an awareness for Ireland to become fully engaged in something like the 1954 Hague Convention. And, you know, in their end, they were very successful. That happened, as I said, in 2018. So some of the aims of Blue Shield um, following that are about um, raising the, an awareness of protecting cultural um, heritage and cultural property, because unfortunately um, we're all too familiar with sites from around the world where cultural heritage is actually attacked um, in the names of, in the name of armed conflict, um, where um, organisations are looking to destroy or obliterate um, a history of a of a, of a different um, 
sort of background to themselves. And, you know, unfortunately, we're all too familiar with that, with various wars around the world. And there are plenty of examples, and there are many examples which can be found as well on the Blue Shield International website, um, which is blueshield.org, if people are more interested. Um, and then the other thing is also that they're very aware that cultural um, properties are also being destructed through climate change. So it's got a two-pronged approach um, to looking after um, our cultural heritage. And I think what's really interesting about this case is whilst we have a very strong and robust um, uh, uh, act here in Ireland for the protection of heritage, it is limited to... Um, monuments and buildings um, of a certain age. And I think what's interesting about the lookout posts is because they're from the 20th century, because they're in archaeological terms relatively young, um, these at this stage don't fall under that kind of protection. Um, and also it, I think it's a lack of um, understanding and knowledge that people have about the significance of them. And I think Michael's highlighted that really well. And I think um, getting people aware that actually there's an importance culturally to looking after our heritage. There's um, what it means both to the local community and to the national community. And, and Blue Shield are there to help, um, I suppose, highlight that and also then provide training uh, is another element of what Blue Shield do. Um, and training in sort of um, cultural property protection um, is one thing. And then the other is um, first aid for um, cultural property after a disaster and those again would be two things that they've been Blue Shield Ireland have been very active in doing in, in the last sort of 10 years. Um, and you mentioned that the 54 convention was ratified in 2018 that's only relatively recently so are we in a position that we have a lot to catch up on in terms of preserving monuments and sites like this or, or because they're from the 20th century, does it need to be gone about a different way? I mean, what's, what's the best way to tackle this? Is, is it awareness? Is it training? Is it lobbying government? Or I think it's all of those. I think it's all of those. And that's really what we are hoping to focus on in the next, in the short term, in the next two to five years of the Blue Shield here in Ireland, is focusing on raising awareness. It's focusing on making sure we're talking to the right people in government. I think... We do, at this point, I think Ireland's in quite a strong position in terms of understanding and valuing our cultural heritage property and, you know, cultural heritage full stop. And I, I think with initiatives that we've had over the last number of years, um, public awareness has also been rising. And the value that we, we place on cultural heritage has definitely increased. Um, but again, it, it's still, I think, there's a need definitely to, uh, I suppose let people know what they can do uh, and what they can do safely. And that's what an awful lot of the training would be about. Um, whilst there, there's a need for specialists, perhaps, to deal with reconstruction, and it's really interesting to hear Jerry talk about um, the, their plans and their hopes in Wexford to, to do a reconstruction. But that reconstruction has to be done in the right way, and it has to be thought about. Um, and again, I suppose we'd see something like Blue Shield or similar organisations within government there to support our county council about uh, and locals um, before they embark on that and I think that the local element is also very important um, it's definitely recognized from international projects 
that you need to talk to the people locally. You need to engage with them. It's um, this look of post, whilst it has significance for the country, it has significance for the locals. And their input, their, um, as Michael said, very often it's um, the locals who have an in-depth knowledge of this because it's been there for a number of years. But talk to them, engage with them. Um, that's all about getting community buy-in as well, getting community support. Um, and all those things are really important and I think that's where, where we should be looking to, to strengthen ourselves. I think having a legislation like the 1954 Hague Convention, having a piece of um, high level um, international legislation like that is really important as well. It, it helps, it filters down, it helps support those government organisations that are trying to improve conditions. Absolutely. Um, and just in, in terms of the, the numbers of them that still survive, I mean, what, what are the numbers at the moment in terms of lookout posts and then the associated buildings and, and area signs? I would think in terms of structure of any kind, uh, let me think. Um, mm. You're probably looking at about 60 or so in some way intact. Um, there's 83 of them built, I'd say, three, six of them have just vanished completely because of coastal erosion. But then um, of ones that were in really good condition, green ore was one of them. And that's what really makes it uh, absolutely appalling that this act of vandalism, cultural vandalism took place. Because I'd say maybe 20 of them or so were in, in really good really good nick. And because the East Coast weather was that bit better than the West Coast, um, the, uh, the there's a kind of an RSJ in the middle of them that uh, would uh, be eaten away by salt water. Mm. And that norm, when that went and corroded, they fell in on themselves. Uh, but the one in Green Ore was in great condition. So um, I would say it was probably amongst one of the best in, uh, in condition in, in, in the country. There was no air assigned there with it because that was removed very quickly after the Second World War by, the, uh, by a farmer in the area. But it's, it's a real um, pity that uh, this didn't uh, stay intact because I'm thinking of what Zoe was saying there, you know, Bring the local community into it, make it into some kind of tourist attraction, because they are tourist attractions. People will come to see it, they'll have a cup of coffee, they'll stay overnight, they'll have a meal, they'll buy a paper, a sandwich or whatever, and it leads to economic regeneration in a small way in a, in a locality through microtourism. And it's a it's a win-win situation, and to, you know, to bring another uh, term in there, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer to have, to have lookout posts reconstructed because you've got that local history. It's always point about what the locals know. They know the men who uh, who ran these lookout posts. They're their forebearers. They yeah. they have the oral history of what happened at Green Ore. The lookout posts are of such a small size. You can make a small museum and then a virtual museum of them. That the, the really the possibilities are endless. What you can do with the history of these structures because of what you have in military archives, because you have the log books here. There's that connection with the past. And so you can bring in sustainable tourism, economic regeneration, heritage, awareness. It all coalesces around this tiny little structure that's the size of, you know, a, a garden shed, basically, with a bay window at the front. Yes. There's so much that can be done with them as part of our 20th century heritage. And that's what really makes it so more annoying that somebody would destroy this part of our history, because there's still so much that those concrete structures can give to us today, to school kids, to, as I said earlier, to tourists and to communities themselves, to make them aware of from whence they came, if you like. And I, th I think a great example is Lookout Post 63 at Capri Tide that we, we've both been mm. to. 
And I know that the local community are very much involved. They, they still have great family connections to the men of the coast watching service and to those who, who built a lookout post in the first place. And um, Amelia Steen and Mick O'Dea, the, the artists, they have a, a home up there and they're very heavily involved. And they are, like you said, putting together, I suppose, like a, it's, a, it's a small, basically a very small museum or interpretive centre in. Make what they're, it's what they're doing with the lookout yeah. post itself through its renovation. And in terms of that thing as well, I, I'm always a believer that well, well, heritage is important intrinsically first. There is also a very real economic value to it as well because I, I think the plan is that there, there, there's talk of a, a walking trail between some of the lookout posts along the, the mm. north. That sounds, that sounds like that coast. would be really lovely, really lovely yeah. to do. But Michael, you also made the point to me last week when we were chatting about this that some of the plans, the architectural plans for them um, and the blueprints are actually in the National Archives as yeah. well. They are. I mean, let's try and get something positive out of this. We've had an, an act of historical and cultural vandalism here. But the really good thing is that the the plans are in the National Archives and the OPW collection. You, you've preserved them. Yep. The logbooks that say what was happening at each post are under Dan's curatorial care at Military Archives. They are. So between you know two important parts of the, the cultural infrastructure of the country, we're going to be able to, and we could maybe help the, the council, or you could help the council, um, with the um, the reconstruction of the post because we have preserved in 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 other uh, forms the, the the material you need to get this part of our built heritage back in action again. We've we've got the paper record. And we can turn that because what's in the National Archives is an absolutely perfect set of blueprints and each lookout post was the same. So you have the blueprints. You also have the snag lists that the builders were um, putting into the Department of Defence and the OPW saying, you know, the door doesn't work or the windows don't work. So we know so much about these structures because of, I guess, good archival practice. You know, the the collection has been kept, it's been listed, it's accessible. uh, The material has, has been, you know, curated. Uh, and your own work in conservation, you know, it's it's there. Yeah, we have it, and the same with what. Th- thanks to you know, uh, far-seeing uh, officers back after the, I think Dan Bryan, the uh, uh, Colonel Dan Bryan, the director of military intelligence, preserved the lookout post logbooks. Like we really have it in this one. We lost a lot of our our archives over the years, but for this part of our, our heritage, we have it, and it's great. I think it is great, and I think the other exciting thing is we don't necessarily have to think about a museum per se or a heritage centre at each site. I think now with technology and advancing, we can find so much on an app or a mm. website. And I mean, that, you know, imagine doing the walk along the coast, going from coast to coast, coming across the building, and then being able to find a resource on your phone that will tell you about the history and think how that would then play out in engaging, especially with school children of, of both primary and post um, primary education, about understanding that period of history and really bringing it to life. And I mean, in fairness, you know, I'm not sure I've ever seen one or been to a lookout post, or maybe I have and I've walked past it and not really thought about what it was. Mm. So I think um, it, it would be amazing to get that highlighted. And it's not just the, the structure itself, it's what happened at it. And, you know, Some of the lookout post logbooks are downloadable on the Military Archives website and you can get one for your part of the country and look at what happened and go down to that location and say, OK, 10 miles west, destroyer. 5,000 feet northeast uh, flying fortress sighted coming from the, the west. You know, and, and you can see it in your own mind because the geography hasn't really changed that much. You can see what the Coast Watchers saw back in, in the, during the Second World War. So it's, it's a really uh, quite flexible form of historical analysis because there's so much 
of um, the, the environment is still there and there's so much of the historical record there. Uh, and, and it's not, you're talking about the walking trail there, it's, it's not just the lookout posts themselves, it's going from post to post. You get to see bits of the country you, you never see otherwise, you get to meet people along the way. And you know, it's, it's really important now as we're coming back into hopefully into being able to meet each other again, just walking down the roads and chatting to people. It's, 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 it's part of that understanding the ways and the, 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 the byways and the, the roads and the back lanes of the country. So it's, they really are an important um, focal point that you can work outwards from for other parts of heritage. Absolutely. Um, I suppose that my takeaway from this is that from this destruction, something good could grow of it. I mean, this has highlighted the fact that you know, when it's gone, people realise, well, hold on a second, part of our history and our heritage, heritage has gone. And that's the idea of, of this podcast, first of all, just to get the, the word out there. And I'm a big believer as well that where there's a will, there's a way. Um, I mean, the way is certainly there because, as we mentioned, the, the material, it's in the archives, it's in the museums, uh, it, it's out there, it's in the history books as well. Um, and I think the will is starting to develop now as well as we get awareness out there. Even Jerry Carty in, in the, the local council, he's been in touch to look for information on the significance yeah. of the lookout post as well. So... I think from something negative, something more positive might grow. I hope so, and that also the, 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 the men who are at Green Ore will hopefully still have relations in the, uh, the Rosslare area, and in their attics, there may well be you know, little box brownie snaps or bits of heritage. I'm thinking of this from um, the work not only at Carothaig, but at, mm. in, in Dawkey and in, uh, also on, on Hoth Head, uh, in Look um, at Post 6. The communities there were uh, getting their posts and signs back together, and they were asking around, do you have any photographs, do you have this, do you have that? And they do. And they're turning up, oh yeah, I've got a little snap of that, I've got a picture of that, I have a bit of a uniform. And so, you know, you're, you're seeing a, a part of the social history also of Ireland during the Second World War coming back out uh, through, even looking at the faces of the men who were uh, manning the posts, that it's, it's the Irish man, the Irish male of the 1940s, and how do they look like? What are the, yeah. you know, I, I know from the records here, you have kind of the height and the weight and the whatever of the, 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 the Coast Watchers on personnel records, and you can calculate the body mass index from that, and so you know, like, how tall are these guys? What are they, how well are they built? Amelia Steen was doing this up in, uh, in, 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 in Carithaig, and you were getting a picture of actually very, um, quite well-built men, which was something you wouldn't really have thought of, maybe, you know, what's the physique of these guys? Yeah. These guys are in good condition, they're out cutting bogs, they're, they're bringing in nets off, you know, yeah. uh, off and that kind of thing. So, you know, you, you can see how the discussion has gone here. You can broaden out from one concrete structure, you're broadening out looking at the, the social history of the country as well. Yeah. And just a final point on, on that, what's really nice in the fact that you just said is that if people have their own heritage and are, can look after their own archives and their own family material, that's hugely important. And that yeah. just buys back into that understanding of why we all have a connection with heritage. Yeah. And that's what it's really about. We all have a heritage, we all have a connection to it. And it's just making sure that we don't lose sight of that, but that other people don't try and lose sight of it for us. Couldn't have said it better. No, I, I think you've saved me the job of doing the the, uh, the last piece of the podcast, so I don't think there's anything better to, that we could finish on. So um, all that remains of it is for me to thank anybody and everybody who has listened to this, the First Military Archives podcast, and to thank my guests, Zoe Reid and Michael Kennedy. This has been the Military Archives podcast. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take care. <laughs>